do you know when you see something and part of you is absolutely shocked and logically you think there's no way that should have happened yeah but the other side of you says i've seen mistakes like that so many times i'm almost not surprised do you know what will happen to your loved ones when something happens to you if you don't know the answer or don't like the answer then this is the show for you Listen up as we teach you about protecting your family legacy through better estate planning. Our family is here to protect yours. So welcome to the Complete Estate Planning Podcast with attorney Nick Rosenbauer. And here's your host, Ben George. Welcome in to Complete Estate Planning. And this podcast is going to focus on a P word that you hear a lot, probate. I've heard about it a lot, and I learned about it a couple episodes ago. I think we touched on probate. I forgot the the context of the discussion, but it really opened my eyes on what I think is the wills, the living trust episode we got into uh, probate quite a bit, and it really opened my eyes to what that process is, how uh, it's something you want to avoid if possible. So we're going to dive in today and really explain the probate process what it's all about, and uh, how it works for you. So if you ever have to get into that situation, you're aware of what it takes, and maybe it opens your eyes to maybe make some adjustments now so that you can avoid probate. We have every conversation every week with Nick Rosenbauer. He is a estate planning attorney and owner over at Rosenbauer Law Office in Westchester. They're online as well at CincinnatiEstatePlan.com. Nick, how are you today? Doing great. How about yourself? And uh, we, uh, I have a couple, uh, we'll call them, war stories or I've had a couple <laughs> close encounters with uh, our local uh, probate courts here in the last uh, week. So if if we didn't have enough material to talk about how much we want to avoid probate, uh, I've been reminded of that very recently. So it just keeps continuing to prove itself over and over again. Yeah, and I kind of got that sense from you from that episode, as I mentioned. It was episode uh, five, comparing a last will and testament to a living trust. I kind of got the sense that uh, probate was a pretty hot topic with you, which is why we're doing this uh, this conversation and this podcast and getting into it quite a bit. Because not only is it a you know something that you're you, you're passionate about, but it's also you know something a lot of people have to deal with. So making them aware of how that process looks, and you know it's interesting because I just saw a headline recently that. You know, the coronavirus is going around and it's had a lot of different effects. But one effect that it did have was Kobe Bryant's wife is going through probate because they never amended their trust to include their youngest daughter. So now they're having to go through that process to try to get her included in that. So it just ties in perfectly. Like even somebody with an estate like that did not take every step needed to uh, to cover their bases. Oh, when I saw that. Do you know when you see something and part of you is absolutely shocked and logically you think there's no way that should have happened? Yeah. But the other side of you says, I've seen mistakes like that so many times, I'm almost not surprised. Do you ever get that feeling yeah. where I was com- I was completely shocked and I thought, what are you doing? But at the same time, I wasn't. And basically... And you mentioned that they had a trust. And so I guess a lot of our listeners are sitting here saying, now, wait a minute, what? why are we even talking about probate court? I thought this trust avoided probate court. Well, generally, yes. However, the probate court is the only institution that is really set up to govern and supervise 
transferring an inheritance. So naturally speaking, if there is an issue with the trust, either a trust is wrong, a trust has typos, a trust is completely messed up, or any situation where a trust is vague, which means you know we don't know what it says, so if a lawyer did a very bad job, the probate court is actually the institution that we turn to for guidance or rulings or interpretations. So that is why they are looking into guidance from the probate court because you know who else would you go to? The criminal court, divorce court. So they don't normally deal with trusts, but they have to make an argument that Kobe Bryant meant to include this extra person. Mm-hmm. And it was a complete mistake, a complete typo. And that is the only reason this person is not included. So we're asking a judge to say, we knew he meant to include this person. Can you please give us a ruling to allow us to include this person in a trust that can't be changed anymore otherwise because the person who created it has passed away? So an absolutely huge mistake. And I I really hope it works out for them. But whatever attorney did that, and again, I haven't read all the details, but from what you're telling me, it sounds like someone did not set this up to protect all the children or future children or whomever needed to be protected, and they didn't future-proof it the way they probably should. Yeah, I, I didn't read everything because uh, it just, as we recorded, it just came out, the story came out uh, not too long ago, so I didn't look through all the details, but I assume it's one of those situations where you got a guy that's you know, in his mid forties, early forties and healthy and, you know, living his best life. You don't really think about those things. And he probably just had it on this list of maybe to do who knows, and just never got around to updating it, which, you know, for an estate that big, you think he would have somebody looking out for him and taking care of all that. But it just goes to show you that the law doesn't care who you are. You have to make sure your estate's in order because if it's not, and this to tell you, and this shows you that you know, you'll have to go through all these headaches to try to get things corrected and it's not guaranteed. So I thought that was interesting to see that. And I'm glad you kind of separated the difference on why probate would get involved with a, a trust. But let's look at it from the will perspective and get into it and really explain this process and what her and other people have to go through when they get into probate. So you kind of you kind of mentioned it, but set us up purpose of the probate court. What is it? How does it what's the reason why you end up in probate? Well, the probate court oversees a few different areas. But the main purpose for what we're talking about is that the probate court is the institution that is in charge of transferring assets that are stuck, if you will, in the name of a deceased person and transferring them into the name of living people after someone passes away. So administering the inheritance um, when someone has passed away and there are assets that are stuck in someone's name. And a perfect example of that, people think, what do you mean by stuck? Well, let's say I own a house and then I die tomorrow. Even if I have a will or a trust or something like that, that says I want my house to go to my wife when I pass away, if the house is just in my name, who the heck is going to sign the deed to transfer the house? Okay, so no one has the authority to do that. So that's what I mean by stuck. And if that's the case, you need the probate court's permission and the probate court's power, if you will, uh, in order to transfer those assets to the living heirs. Okay, well, I I assume like most uh, legal processes, it's not a very streamlined 
one, I would imagine. So let's kind of take, <laughs> go through those steps and, and walk me through how this process actually works. If I end up in probate, how does this work? Let's start from that first step. I think there's five total steps that you go through. Let's start with the first. You're absolutely right. Normally, there are five steps, at least here in Ohio. Okay. And I want to preface this by saying there are times when you can skip the majority of these steps. And there is an express version of probate out there. I know Ohio has it. I know most states do. And that is only for very limited circumstances. So people may say, when my dad passed away, all he had was a couple thousand dollars and a bank account. So everything that I talk about here, they sit there and they think, well, I never had to go through that. It was a piece of cake. Got it done in two weeks. Well, in Ohio, we're talking a very, very, very small amount of assets. So if we're talking uh, an unmarried individual and assets are passing on to their heirs, we're talking less than $35,000, which at this point is a two, three-year-old car. So if we don't have much of an estate, the things that I'm about to talk about can be streamlined. But anyone who has you know, even a house, in most cases, we have to go through this whole process. So the first step would obviously be opening the probate. Okay, So we need to get this started. It is not a situation where, and, and I've had clients of mine do this, where they say, you know, they'll call me once they get stuck and they say, well, mom passed away and she named me the executor. So I took mom's will to the bank and told the bank, I am the executor for mom's estate. Give me the money. And they say no because we have not opened the probate estate yet. There's a formal process. So first we need to classify what type of probate is needed. So obviously the full probate or the express probate if, if possible. And then if there is a last will and testament, we need to submit that to the probate judge for approval and, and make sure it's signed properly. There's no mistakes, et cetera, et cetera. If there's not a will, at all. If the person had no last will and testament, we have to notify the court of that. And then we also have to submit information to the court on the family members, the the players involved, if you will. So the next of kin, so the people who are the closest living relatives and the beneficiaries of the estate. And you might say, Nick, that should be the same people. Well, what if I wanted some of my money to go to the children and some to go to a church or a charity. So the beneficiaries and the next of kin aren't always the same people. And you also have to submit initial information on what the value of the estate is, obviously, uh, to classify if it's the full probate or the express probate. So that's step one. Now, also, under most circumstances, step two is done at the same time, hopefully. Um, so step two um, and I'm just going to keep uh, going here. Like I said, okay. normally do the first two at the same time. Step two would be appoint someone to be in charge of handling the estate. And there are two phrases or two names for what that person, uh, for that person who's in charge. The first is executor. And Ben, I'm assuming you and most of our listeners have heard the phrase executor before. All they do is execute the will. So it's not a, a clever name. I love when people 
call it executioner. Um, <laughs> I've had that happen a couple times, add a few syllables, make it a heck of a lot more exciting than probate process <laughs> actually is. The other term, and maybe you've heard this, but it's less common, is administrator. And if there is a last will and testament, then the person who passed away in that last will and testament should have picked someone that they want to be the executor. So if there's a will that names someone to do the job, that person is called the executor. But if there's not a will at all, or if the will does not name someone to do the job, and the probate judge has to pick who's in charge, it is known as the administrator. Okay, so if you're appointed by the will of the deceased person, it's called an executor. If you're not appointed by the will, and basically what happens is anyone who wants to apply to be in charge of this, you know, files a motion, they basically raise their hand and say, pick me. And then if the judge picks who it is, it's called the administrator. Okay. And normally, especially if we have a will, we do those two steps together because part of the process of submitting the will and starting this off will be saying, look, in this last will and testament, this person has been named as the executor. So naturally, those first two steps go together. Okay. How long does that those two steps usually take? Is this a couple days? Is this an hour? What does this look like? Oh, boy. Um, or is that just and, too open-ended? Well, I don't mean to sound crass here, but it is. it takes longer than it should. And actually now with, um, as we're recording this right now, it's the end of March. So right now we're on almost a complete shutdown here in Ohio due to coronavirus. Uh, Right now it's taking even longer because a lot of courts are not allowing us to drop things off in person. And even things in the mail, I was talking to uh, one of the clerks at a local probate court yesterday, sent some paperwork in. And she said that any mail that comes in they now have to let it sit in quarantine, if you want to call it that, for two weeks before they open it. So right now, everything that I'm about to say, time has been added to that even beyond what we originally talked about. But generally speaking, it requires probably a couple hours worth of meetings with the attorney, one meeting to go through the details, another meeting to come back after the attorney's had some time to prepare paperwork. And then we need to get paperwork signed and information on the next of kin and the beneficiaries. And then we have to usually hand deliver this paperwork to the county probate court. And then usually we end up waiting uh, for that to be processed. So from the time we get all the paperwork signed by the family members, anywhere from a week to three weeks, depending on which court, and usually it takes um, a couple weeks, maybe even a couple months before we even get to that point. So could be a matter of weeks, could be a matter of months to even get this started. Before we go on to the third step, uh, just quickly back up to step two, can that step get pretty messy if there is no will in terms of multiple people trying to be that executor? Does that happen frequently or does the family usually talk about it beforehand and have one person ready to represent them? Well, that's a great question. And if there is no will, or if the will doesn't name someone to do the job of executor and it is up to the judge to pick someone, a lot of times that can get very messy. 
and not for the reason you might think. It's not necessarily because all of the children hate each other and family drama that you would only see in a TV show. It generally comes down to control and which of us is going to be in control. Which one of us is going to go through all of mom and dad's assets? Who's going to decide whether or not we sell the house or keep the house? Who's going to decide if we have an estate sale or not? So it usually comes down to control. And when the judge has to pick someone in order for you to get picked, if you're the only person who raises their hand for the job and all the children have talked about it and agreed, maybe the the most responsible kid is the one who'll do it. That's no problem at all. But a lot of times it, it almost turns into uh, what was that uh, movie? Yeah, where everyone gets up and says, I'm Spartacus, you know, and everyone yeah. says, I'm the best. It's almost like, pick me, pick me, pick me. And if that's the case, everyone who wants to do the job hires their own attorney and they try to convince the probate judge that they are the best child. They are the best person to do the job, which of course means they have to talk about why they are better at the job than their siblings or other family members. And Ben, you can probably imagine what type of roads that can go down. Yeah. Oh man. Uh, all right. So we got in the first two steps. So we've opened the probate estate. Second step, appoint an executor or an administrator. What's number three? Next, we do an inventory. And so it is a specific list of all the assets that the deceased person owned when he or she died. And I'm talking about date of death. Okay, so regardless of when this whole process got started and how long it took to find the will and get all of this taken care of, then we go backwards. And I obviously mentioned in step one, we have to give some initial information, more of an estimate on the value of the estate in step one. Here's where we go into specifics. So here's where we need to say there was a bank account at Fifth Third Bank had $321.09. They had P&G stock, five shares. On the day they passed away, it was worth this many dollars for the real estate. Here's the appraisal that we got. So we have an exact value, okay? And again, like I said, this is date of death. So this is not what it's worth today. It is on the minute that this person passed away, in detail, what is everything that they had that is subject to the probate estate. So everything that's stuck. So this is a full detailed list of what we're dealing with, if that makes sense. And then obviously, if things need to be appraised, um, such as a house or a car, things like that, you need to submit that paperwork as well. And, and of course, with a bank account, you don't need an appraisal. You just need an account statement that says what the amount was. Okay. Not to throw a wrench in the conversation, but what if... Um you do all this, you got your inventory, and then let's say 10 years down the road, an asset pops up that you oh, weren't boy. aware of. Are we going back to this process again, Nick? We have to reopen the probate and amend or redo the inventory. Oh, geez. Right. So if something like that comes out of the woodworks years down the road, then we have to go back and reopen everything. Um, which <laughs> it, it depends on what the value is. If it's a $10 savings bond, forget it. It's not worth it. But if we found 
$300,000 worth of investments uh, in an account that we didn't know existed, it's worth it. Now, it's certainly a headache. And if we don't find everything and, and things pop up later, then you have to go back and amend that and add it to the list. Yeah, I envision like, you know, in 30 years, somebody finding like Bitcoin that their dad owned, owned at some point oh early in life and they, <laughs> and they rediscover it. But uh, we won't go down that road too far. Um, fourth step, accounting and distribution. Okay, so step four sometimes happens one time and sometimes it can happen multiple times. So sometimes this is just step four. Sometimes this can be step 4A, 4B, and 4C. So accounting and distribution is two separate things, and usually the accounting is the second piece of this. So obviously during and, and this doesn't all go on at one time, okay? So we need to make sure we collect all the assets, we liquidate things, maybe we sell the stock, maybe we collect the life insurance proceeds, et cetera. However, we want to do that. Maybe we sell the house and then we we process everything. So whatever type of asset it is, we process it, consolidate. And then if we only do this one time, we go ahead and make our distributions um, at the end and we file what is known as a fiduciary's account. So that is a detailed list of everything that happened with all of the assets from the day the person passed away up until now. And now could mean we're done with everything and we're now ready to close things out. Or if it takes too long from when you start the probate, you have nine months to get to step four in most circumstances. So if nine months from now you haven't collected everything, let's say the house hasn't sold. If the house hasn't sold, you have to do a partial account. So this turns into step 4A. If everything's sold and we're ready to finish up, you can do this only one time. But like I said, normally if there's a situation where we're nine months into this and it's not done, the house hasn't sold, we're expecting a tax refund next year, something like that. So you file this account and it is unbelievably specific. You have to list every penny that has come in every penny that has gone out from the day the person died until now. Fees paid, five cents in interest earned in the bank, sale of the car, sale of the house, an estate sale. Heck, you need to put that you made $200 at a yard sale. Hmm. Keep the homeowner's insurance, the water bill, paying the recording fees for the real estate, you name it. You have to list every single item. Now, there's good reason for that. The probate judge is supervising all this, and it's to make sure that all the numbers add up and no one's stealing. So I guess that's a good thing, but that's what has to happen. And the reason account and distribution are sometimes in step four together is if we get everything done during this period, we can distribute the inheritance. Okay, so if we've sold everything, sold the house, collected everything, and now all that's left to do is to write the checks, we can go ahead and make those distributions to the loved ones. And then we put that in our account as well. So at the bottom of the account paperwork, the last thing that it would say is distribution check written to all three kids. 
Okay, but obviously, if this is the first account and we have multiple ones to go because we're not done, the inheritance plan won't be carried out yet. We normally don't distribute the inheritance until everything's done, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Um, so is that the last step? I mean, at that point, you're ready to shut it down and close it up? Um, no, um, <laughs> it's, it's close. But if once we are done and we do the last account and we're ready to distribute the inheritance, then we get to the closing state part, okay. the estate, which is step five, and where we basically ask the judge's permission to close the estate, finalize the probate, and also release the executor or the administrator from their liability uh, once everything is approved. So this is basically a lengthy paperwork uh, version of saying, Your Honor, I've paid all the bills. I've collected all the assets. All the inheritance has been distributed. Can you please tell me I'm dismissed uh, at this point? Also, most importantly, this is where um, we ask permission from the judge to allow the executor and the lawyer to collect their fees. Interestingly enough, the attorneys and the executors under most circumstances are not allowed to get paid until it's all over. So I am generally the last person to get paid along with the executor. So we, we basically cash our checks at the end. And the reason they do that, I think it's a little cruel, but they do that so the attorneys and the executors are motivated uh, to get a move on and not let these things drag out. But at the same time, if this takes a year, year and a half, um, I basically work for free for a year and a half before we get paid at the end. Oh, but fun. that's closing the estate. Yeah. Okay. Well, there's so many moving pieces and so many parts to the probate process. But I guess the other thing to consider, there's still one more, and that's that you have to have cooperation on each one of these steps from all the next of kin and, and the beneficiaries to keep this process moving along. You're right. And this is probably where some of the listeners cringe if they think about you know, their children or their siblings. All of the beneficiaries and all of the next of kin, so the closest living relatives, uh, have to cooperate by signing and returning paperwork for each of these steps. By law, I don't want to get too much into a law school lecture here, but by law, every interested party, and obviously a beneficiary, someone who's receiving an inheritance, is considered an interested party. They're entitled to notices and heads-ups, if you will, and uh, a shot in court if they want to contest anything for every step of the way to protect themselves. Additionally, you are probably thinking, why am I saying beneficiaries and next of kin or closest living relatives? Well, what if the next of kin or the closest living relatives are not receiving an inheritance? Okay, let's say one of our children, we're cutting them out. Or let's say we don't have children and it's going to siblings or nieces and nephews, et cetera. So you might think if they're not getting money, what do we care? Well, they are interested parties and they are entitled to notice and heads up and their day in court to air their grievances as well. Because if the will was invalidated or if there was no will, the next of kin, whomever they are, these are the people who by default would get the money if there was no will. So obviously, if my dad leaves a will and he passes away and it says everything goes to my sister and nothing goes to me, well, that, you know, if for whatever reason that will turned out to be a fraud, 
or forged or invalid, if I got that will thrown out, then I would suddenly get a piece. So, you know, you talk about cooperation and having everyone sign paperwork, basically giving a thumbs up and saying, we're okay with it. We accept what the executor has done. We accept the will. We accept that this person's going to be the executor. If someone is being disinherited, if someone is getting less than their siblings, or if they feel like they should have gotten more. So if there's any fighting among the family members, all someone has to do is refuse to sign and send back the paperwork. And then we're having hearings. We are sending certified registered mail, a return receipt, and everyone has to sign for it. Uh, you name it. So the way they, they do that to protect things and allow everyone to get their day in court. Okay. So I guess I understand what could be considered the good, if you want to call it that. But if someone doesn't want to cooperate, they can make this process miserable. They can add months and months and months to the process just by being mad. So heck, if one of the kids says, this is terrible, I should have been in charge of this and they get mad and they want to pout, then they can do that and they can hold things up for everybody. Oh, wonderful. Sounds like a uh, a fun time. What's the longest probate process you've been through? Have you oh, had boy. one that's been extremely drawn out? There's one from a firm that I worked with previously um, and I wasn't involved in, but they were working on it for a long time before I got hired there. And then when I left four years later, they were still working on it. <laughs> wow. Uh, that's great. Uh, man. Well, the probate process is not one that uh, sounds too exciting. Not one that you seems like you'd be very uh, stress-free as you went through it. Um, so something you want to consider uh, as you're building out your will taking steps to make sure you can avoid this at all costs uh, is probably the likely situation for most people. But uh, one last little piece of this, and we don't want to get into it too much. We're going to spend next episode on ways to avoid this. I think after everything you've given me, I think we need to spend time on an entire podcast on how to avoid getting into the probate process altogether. Uh, but the one other piece of this is obviously this isn't done for free by great people like you, Nick. There is a fee involved in this. And that can be pretty steep, especially for what you're getting. Well, it depends on the perspective. First off, absolutely right. You know, I, I do charitable work and I, I, I donate and I help out, you know, to those less fortunate when I can. But handling these probates I, I, is absolutely not what I would consider charity. Um, so, right. The, the way it works in Ohio, there are actually guideline attorney fees so there is there is a law that says here is the guideline fee schedule, what is considered per se reasonable to settle the estate. It's a graduated scale. So think of it the way income taxes work, where the first so many thousand you make is taxed at this rate, and then the next amount is taxed at this rate, et cetera, et cetera. In most cases, it roughly works out to be four to five percent of the total gross estate value. And notice that's different than net estate. So yeah, let me explain that. Let's say we have a $200,000 house with a $100,000 mortgage on it. Okay. The gross estate would be $200,000. So we talk about what's in the estate. We have $200,000 worth of assets in the estate. 
the net estate would be after we pay off the bills, in this case, the mortgage, what do we have left? We only have 100000 left. The fees are based on the gross estate. So even if it's a million-dollar house with a million-dollar mortgage on it, my fees are calculated based on a million dollars, even though the estate is worthless. And the reason why is because if I make a mistake, I could still ruin a million-dollar house, whether there's a mortgage on it or not. Interestingly enough, though, it's actually not just the greedy attorney licking his lips and thinking, how much money can I charge this grieving family after they've lost a loved one and they're at their most vulnerable? And honestly, a lot of times I bring out the calculators to the meeting because people won't believe me what the costs are. So just to give you an example, for a $200,000 estate, the attorney's fee be roughly $8,500. So that's just a house. Uh, $750,000 state, let's say we had a house, a 401k, maybe a couple cars. So for something like that, I'd get over $22,000. If we had $1.5 million estate, then I'm getting over $37,000. Let's say someone had a good size estate, maybe $5 million, then my fee is over hundred grand just to give you an idea of how much I get to charge for that. So it's not even me thinking, you know, how can I take advantage of these people? And for a $5 million state, people are thinking, wow, over $100,000, that's more than most people make in a year. But at the same time, it's funny because when it's all over, usually my clients think they paid too much to me. And I feel like I didn't make enough money um, <laughs> because of, you know, headaches and back and forth and delays and problems. And, you know, one of them I'm working on right now, um, it could take three years to finish up. Jeez. And I'm not going to go through the specifics of that. But if I ever lose my hair early, that's probably what I'll blame it on. And this is one that looking back now. Honestly, if you asked me to do it again, I would not take the case for three times what the fee is. Wow. And, you, and you've and you probably heard, obviously, the fee is rather generous to me. Yeah. But I would never, you know, it's not worth it to me. And on top of that, I haven't gotten paid yet. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's tough for me and it's tough for the client. So it's, it's not a win-win situation. Like when we do good estate planning, I feel like I helped the clients feel like, you know, their family's taken care of. Everyone's happy. This is almost like a lose-lose. Um, it's annoying. It's time-consuming. It's difficult. It's expensive. And no one really enjoys it. Now, we do it, okay? So I do a lot of planning. We do a lot of settling uh, states after the fact someone passes away. But And we do a good job with it. I, I, I can't say it's my most rewarding work, though, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. Well, that's a complete look at the probate process. It's a, uh, I guess, got me all confused right now, trying to trying to work through it all uh, <laughs> step by step because it's there's a lot, obviously, that goes into it uh, from start to finish, and it can be a long, drawn out process. So. Avoid it if you can, and that's what we're going to talk about on the next episode. We want to get into what you can do, the different ways, four different ways you can avoid probate court being avoid being with stuck assets that's what we want to talk about in the next episode and we'll do that on complete estate planning with nick rosenbauer you can remember you can always get in touch with him get all of his resources that he offers up 
Ohio's complete guide to estate planning, five reasons to avoid these DIY estate planning kits, if that's something you think you can do on your own, a checkup guide, and, and much, much more. It's all right there on his website at Cincinnati Estate Plan. Dot com. The office can also be reached by phone at 513-463-6789. Well, Nick, thanks for walking me through it. Uh, still not a fan of probate. I know that after uh, listening to this conversation, but I learned a lot. Absolutely. Uh, glad to go through it with you. And, and Ben, you are not alone <laughs> um, as far as uh, people not being a fan of probate. Uh, so you are you are part of the many, not the few. Well, thanks for listening to this episode of Complete Estate Planning. We will be back with you again in just a couple of weeks. Make sure you subscribe in the meantime and sign up for Nick's uh, estate planning newsletter. You can do that on his website as well. So until next time, thanks for joining us. We will talk to you again soon. The Complete Estate Planning Podcast is brought to you by the Rosenbauer Law Office, based in Westchester, Ohio, and serving the entire Cincinnati area. The show is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere you listen to podcasts. Subscribe to the show on your favorite app today and never miss an episode. Just search for Complete Estate Planning with Nick Rosenbauer to find us or visit CincinnatiEstatePlan.com to listen to past episodes, to contact Nick, and to learn more about protecting your family legacy. That's CincinnatiEstatePlan.com. This show is for informational purposes only and does not provide any legal advice. Information on this show may not constitute the most up-to-date legal information. Please do not act or refrain from acting based solely on anything you hear on this show. This show does not form any attorney-client relationship with the Rosenbauer Law Office, LLC. Please seek the counsel of a qualified attorney before addressing your own estate planning needs.